to Everyday Theology, where we don't tell you what to believe or why to believe it, but rather explore our Christian beliefs and why they matter for us in relation to God, to creation, and to others. My name is Aaron Ross. Welcome back to Everyday Theology. Uh, super excited for our guest today, and, and there's a lot of reasons why I'm excited. Before I introduce our guest and the topic, I, I need to reintroduce um, a friend to the podcast. He's been on a couple times, but now someone who I just consider a good friend of mine, uh, Mark Bird. Hey, Mark. Hey, Aaron. How you doing again? I'm good, man. It's good, good. to be back. It's, it feels weird to say that to you when you know we talk regularly. Yeah. <laughs> as if it's the first time I've seen you in a while. Yeah. Um, but Mark's going to join me because both of us kind of resonated very deeply, and and we'll explain that kind of each in our own story, with um, a book that my guest wrote that's going to be kind of the topic of discussion today. For those who are familiar with the podcast, you know, somehow we've become, I, I say somehow we've become even more Pentecostal than already what it was considering I grew up Pentecostal, and I've kind of transitioned to a different tradition now, but a lot of the guests end up being Pentecostal. But we're talking today about Pentecostalism and mysticism. Now, we recently had a podcast on that, um, but this is going to take it in a bit of a different way. So uh, my guest today is Dr. Daniel Costello, who is the William Kellen Quick Professor of Theology and Methodist Studies at Duke Divinity School. Uh, and if there's any question about his Pentecostal background, I know he's gotten at least one degree, his undergrad from Lee and his grad from, was it the Church of God Theological Seminary? Uh, so we're, we're all in good company here. Um, Dr. Cassell, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, it's my pleasure. Um, Dr. Cassell, like I, like I ask most of my guests, just to introduce yourself, tell us a little bit about you maybe even how you got into teaching or how you got into kind of writing some of these texts and kind of what drove you there. Great. I've been teaching at Duke for a couple of years now. Uh, before that, I was at Seattle Pacific University for 14 years. And prior to that, I was in a Pentecostal seminary for three years in Mexico uh, teaching. Hmm. So I've had different experiences. As far as my vocation as a theologian i really felt this call very early uh, in my life i would say um all the way to my junior high years and part of it was driven by my father who had done some seminary work but uh, when we moved to tennessee uh, when i was in junior high uh, he returned to seminary and then he started sharing with me uh, the things that he was reading and um and I just fell in love with the material hmm. because I realized, wow, this is a way to be Christian. There are people out there, not just contemporary people, but people from the past who really devoted seriously their their intellect in service to God. Mm -hmm. And when I realized that you can talk about uh, the things of God in this deep and thoughtful way, uh, I was hooked. And um, I... I wrestled with whether this was a, a hobby and or a feature <laughs> of my discipleship or if actually this was going to uh, be my my vocation my profession and i had a, a come to jesus moment in college uh, where I, I i realized you know i'm I, this there's a reason why i've had this tugging for so long and i i need to obey that and so 
Um, as you mentioned, I went to Lee, I went to the seminary uh, right after. And then right after that, uh, I did my doctorate here at Duke, um, uh, working with Jeffrey Wainwright. Um, and as far as this topic uh, of uh, Pentecostalism as a mystical tradition, it's, it was one that came about largely as, uh, as out of a desire to try to make sense of this tradition using different kinds of categories hmm. um, that were available in the Christian tradition. And so that's, it's, it's one of those things that you saw some hints of it here and there, people maybe in a footnote or in just a passing remark say, you know, these early Pentecostals sounded like Catherine of Siena or uh, they, they sounded um, uh, like other uh, ancient mystical voices. And I thought, wow, you know, I, th there's something to that. Um, hmm. Yeah, there's a correlation, but can we go further than that and, and really press the logic of Pentecostalism? And that's why um, the title of the book is Pentecostalism as a Christian, right? There are multiple mystical traditions and various religious traditions. A lot of it's driven by how one defines mysticism and, and, and the mystical. But um, so in the title, Pentecostalism as a Christian mystical tradition, the sense that it is something that we're not just talking about ex individual experiences, but we're talking about uh, something um, larger here, and I, I would want to stress it is um, the work of God in the world mm. uh, over time, and people responding to that and living out of that with certain sensibilities. And when you start making those correlations across these different eras, across these different figures, you realize there are some patterns here in terms of when people experience the presence of God, there are some patterns in terms of what language they use, um, the limits right. that they see, um, uh, the the uh, the things that they're inclined to do as a result, and and I think it's just a very beautiful testimony uh, to the God that we Christians worship, uh, that we see that thread running through. Yeah, and so that that's partly how the book came about is my desire to try to think of Pentecostalism. You have all these other iterations, all these other attempts, sociological accounts, right? Uh, historical accounts and so forth. I wanted to make a theological account, um, but not strictly a, a historical theological account to say, all right, so you can trace some themes from the holiness movement of the 19th century and these get mm -hmm. uh, played out i was thinking broader and and um in, in a more expansive way um and and i ended up landing on on mysticism i think other possibilities are out there like monasticism possibly um at least you know in a very specific way uh, but i think this is a very generative um possibility. yeah let, let me ask because, you know, I actually just released a podcast not too long ago um, with Dale Coulter, right? And we talked about it much more in the historical tradition, right? Like, like what is what is the his history of, of mysticism? What does that look like when we now compare that, right, to this tradition? Yeah. So, you know, and asking about this in a theological way, even just as a launching point and talking about your book and then for what that meant for Mark and I, um, how would you define that? for our listeners who may not be fully kind of aware of the mystic tradition or, you know, or just learning about it. Like when we actually even say mystic tradition, 
what are we talking about? Yes, that language of <laughs> mysticism is just, it, it's, a, it's a very a difficult uh, notion because we already typically come with some very uh, stark, very uh, full accounts of what that means and doesn't mean, right? So I, I taught a class at Duke last year on mystical theology. I'll be teaching it again uh, this spring, and we spend, uh, I would say, half of the semester just working through that language hmm. uh, because um, there is a sense, perhaps, that some that there has to be some for lack of a better word, some deconstruction of that language before we can even start using it well theologically. And what would that deconstruction look like? Um, it would it would be that when we're talking about the mystical, we're not talking about something uh, necessarily um, shadowy and ambiguous, and 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 it's just a filler word when we don't have anything else to say. We're not right. talking about something that's irrational per se. Um, but we have all those associations. And then when you look at certain figures, even within the Christian theological tradition, some people make some pretty uh, uh, uncharitable remarks about mysticism, right? And so you look, well, what is it that they're critiquing? And oftentimes it has to do with um, uh, people being solipsistic in their faith, um, that it's all about their experiences. Um, it's all about their accounts. And then when they have these experiences, they they feel that they have authority now to speak uh, maybe even just as authoritatively as the scriptures. And so there are all kinds of associations with this language. And so it's so crucial to, to get some, some definition of it. And for me um, in that now constructive side, what work can this language do? Um, I think it's a way of, of in the first place, rethinking the connection between theology and spirituality right yeah. I think that's a, a a significant challenge that's been bequeathed to us in light of the way theology has uh, splintered over the centuries how you could say it was something that was undertaken within the church or the worshiping faithful and then there was a, a sort of migration uh, maybe even a, a break uh, between that and now theology understood as a discipline within the academy and so there is a sense in which, all right, if we, if we bridge together um, uh, or we think about the interconnectivity between spirituality and theology, and we say that um, God is the subject uh, in some sense and, and the object in some sense of that work, uh, of what we mean by spirituality and, and theology, um, then we're starting to press upon uh, questions about all right, as we theologize, but we're theologizing with, with a sensibility towards the spiritual, we have to start accounting for the limits of what we can do. Mm -hmm. uh, we have to account for the limits of our language. Uh, we have to make some space for the affective. Um, we have to um, realize as we're using this language, it's not, I, I love this um, uh uh, a way of, of of talking about different kinds of mystery in in in, um, in one text uh, that uh, I use in that class, um, in which we're not talking about an investigative mystery, in which hmm. we're trying to figure things out, and then once we do, the mystery is solved, and and we don't need to worry about it anymore. So this is not like a cold case 
where there's, a, there's an unknown variable, it's a mystery, and the whole goal is to figure it out so that the mystery ceases. Yeah. Um, rather than that, we're talking about when we're talking about God, and this is ultimately a way of trying to affirm God at the center of theology and spirituality, that we're talking about a generative mystery. Hmm. Uh, we're talking about uh, one uh, whom we'll never figure out, and that's part of the blessing. That's part of the the, the beauty of theology, um, and, and it's generative in the sense that um, we find ourselves in this mystery. We're not there's we we realize that ignorance is not a problem, but it can be a gift, cast as a gift, hmm. because we realize yeah. there's always more and more to know about God. Um, we uh, start to to realize that. Um, like the the spiritual life and the theological life are, are journeys that there are levels of maturation and growth that that's part of it um all these different kinds of dimensions and i will say too um i, I think it it dovetails very importantly with the language that especially paul uses at times where he talks about that we are called to be stewards of of, of god's mysteries right there's a sense yeah. in which um all right, so th this language can be used in a biblical way. It can be used in a way that's that's theological, that connects the theological with the spiritual. Um, so both in terms of uh, resisting some of the maybe assumptions that we have about that language and then by placing God at the center, starting to work through other possibilities of, of all right, how do we do this work of theology and how does this work of theology connect to our spirituality and and there's just a lot of possibilities there one last probably bigger question and then and then i want to throw it over to mark um as someone who's kind of thought through this as uh well again i'll let him tell his own story in that but um when you were kind of going through that and i think that's really a helpful way of thinking about mystery because i think you're right a lot of people tend to go if i can just figure this out then you know it's no longer a mystery right it, it really mystery doesn't become a beautiful thing. It just becomes something I, I think of, uh, oh my gosh, his name's going to slip out of my head. He wrote, uh, George McDonald. There we go. This idea that we can just grab something. And then once we do, it becomes dead versus the idea that the mystery can stay alive when we don't try to hold on too tight. And I, I think that's really a helpful way for a lot of people to understand it. So when you were writing this text, what were your kind of biggest findings or like ahas about that this way of thinking actually does describe a Pentecostal tradition, um, especially because, you know, in my own experience growing up, I would say I could feel that effectively, but I didn't hear that particularly whenever it was tried to be explained to me, right? Uh, there was almost this disconnect between what was told and what we experienced or how we we engaged in that spirituality, right? Yes. I appreciate that distinction that you make because, um, and you're not the first, and I felt this at, at, as well in Pentecostal context that, you know, we have the experience of Pentecostal worship. Uh, we have the experience of Pentecostal fellowship. Um, we have the experience of, of sensing God in, in those contexts. And then when we, 
make the subsequent move at some level. It is subsequent looking back. All right, how do we articulate this and how do we conceptualize it, right? That's part of the work of theology is that we're, we're trying to give an account to ourselves and to others. What is it that we're feeling? What is it that we're sensing? And I felt at times, uh, like what it seems that you're suggesting as well, that there, there was a disconnect between our ability to articulate it and what in terms we we feel and, and we and we sense is true. At some level, that disconnect is um, inevitable, right? Because as soon as you try to articulate something, um, I, I'm committed to the idea you're already creating some level of distance, right? Um, because mm -hmm. as, as you try to communicate something verbally, some things get lost necessarily. You know, people have that expression of time to say, oh, well, this and this happened, this and this happened. You know what? You just had to be there to understand what, <laughs> right. I, what I'm saying. And that's right. true, right? And I think that's a, a funny little way of, of noting the really serious matter that as we verbalize, we're, there is a level of mediation, but a level of distancing too. So at some level, it's inevitable. And uh, there are certain ways of articulating and conceptualizing that may be more fitting than others. And so to your, uh, to the earlier question that you posed, I started to really press into um, what I, I firmly believe is that certain strands of evangelical thought are not conducive to suggesting Pentecostal ways of, of mm. living the faith. There is a huge disconnect between certain evangelical accounts and um for lack of a better word pentecostal spirituality their pentecostal worldview etc and i think that's important to stress because there is that phase um within pentecostalism's maturation uh, as a as a theological movement uh, especially in, in english-speaking contexts where the appeal was made to use evangelical sources to make sense of pentecostalism and and so that you feel a, a pretty disconnect even looking at the history you know a lot of people appeal to azusa and azusa is not this romanticized yeah it is that's the way we need to get back to right and there there are there are elements there as well but as you progress from azusa on into the 50s and 60s uh, you realize okay so now in terms of formal denominational structures on the american scene there is this evangelicalization of Pentecostalism and it's at odds in many respects with what what I at least have come to see or associate with uh, some basic features of Pentecostalism so that was one aspect uh, from um, from my work that that really um, uh, grew in importance um, yeah. these are largely intellectual matters these are matters related to how what words we use how we put thoughts together how we reason um, epistemological matters, um, metaphysical matters, etc., um, hermeneutical matters. I mean, right. you'd say, well, it's it's theology, yeah, but there is a a grounding intellectual culture here uh, that shapes so much, and um, and the grounding intellectual culture of again certain features of evangelicalism, I would say, are antithetical to um, the Pentecostal way of being. That's why. You mentioned Dale uh, Coulter. He's a medievalist. He's right. trained as a medievalist. Right. He's able to see certain things through his work uh, because 
the medieval era represents a very different intellectual culture. And it could be that certain features that, uh, of Pentecostalism can best be described not by modernist uh, features of intellectual culture, but maybe medieval ones and, and further uh, more ancient classical ones, etc. So that's one thing. And the other thing I would just add is that as I started pressing and, and, and identifying these things, all right, so there's this antithesis, there's this tension between certain features of, of evangelical thinking and, and, and what we can stress would be Pentecostal thinking or reasoning. Um, then I started to see some corollaries that were significant. Um, and so in the latter part of the book, I draw connections between how Pentecostals um, talk about their experiences and, and reason and how that can connect to folks like Pseudo-Dionysius and, and Gregory of Nyssa and others with this idea that, all right, so um, now that we've done that work of, of, of tearing down some things, what are some possibilities that emerge as a result? And I think it's a, a pretty um, uh, a generative and, and enjoyable process to see, you know, uh, uh, there are these corollaries, and and we can resist this this marginalizing strategy, perhaps that Pentecostalism is just something new, it's mm. something innovative, it's something that you know. Yeah. All right, it's only a 20th century phenomenon. Uh, no, I, I don't. Again, if we centered on God and God's work, and if God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, then there there should be detectable patterns of God's work, God's self-manifestation across the centuries. And there are certain things that come up in Pentecostal spirituality that we can connect to some of these other figures and, yeah. and, and maybe see that clear once we push against some of those things that distract from those possibilities, right? So it's it's both, a, um, to use a certain way of phrasing, there's a there's a mortificatio element and a vivificatio element. We have to to maybe let go of some things, um, mm-hmm. uh, put some things to, uh, it's a strong word, but to, to, to put it to death so that other things can come to life. Right. right? And that's that's partly what I, I really, I suspected some of these things could happen, but as I really delved into writing the book, they came uh, to the fore very, very, in a very pronounced way. Yeah, and and I have I love that you make this distinction between this being intellectual differences of grounding, and you know part of me wants to almost respond and go, I think that's because of our mystic tradition that we can say that, whereas others may not be able to say that because that part of their tradition that says these are generative mysteries that, you know, is limited by our language the way that we can talk about things, um, but I, and I have a hundred more questions, but. I want Mark to jump in here um, because Mark, one of the, one of the things that, you know, you and I talked about after we both had read, you know, I read it and one of our conversations, we were talking about Pentecostalism and some of those things in the background that started grading on us about our Pentecostal upbringing. And, and I just threw out this book and I think you kind of got it right away. And I think it was not too long after we had another conversation and you made some pretty staunch remarks. So I want to hear from you kind of, and, and any questions you have from Dr. Costello in in regards to that, but how this has helped form, I think, your understanding. Um, I wish that you could tell me what those remarks that I made are. So I could, <laughs> it's it's um, been a while. Yeah. Um, no, I, I really enjoy the book because, um, you know, being raised, I guess, Pentecostal, charismatic, assembly of God, that would be my background right there. Um, uh you know, Episcopalian up until about the time that I was like 
nine or 10 years old. And then my parents came back from this uh, getaway and uh, they were completely different. And when I asked what had happened, they said that they were baptized in the Holy Spirit and they were speaking in tongues. And this spread through my family and I watched my grandparents transform. I watched um, eventually my sister transform. But also what went on with that is that my mom became very experiential based, you know, very much about her experience to the point that um, my parents were divorced because my mom had an experience with Jesus telling her to that she was unequally yoked with spiritually unequally yoked with my dad. And so um, immediately uh, I had this experience that I um, appreciated as far as like the openness to spirit, but also I had the suspicion of it too. And so I experienced both the good and the bad of it. And, and I think, you know, the, the, the buzzword now is deconstruction. Um, and a lot of times deconstruction is another word for burn everything down in your past. Um, whereas for me, I'm trying to uh, do that transcend and include kind of thing, which is to transcend some of the toxicity, but to include what I'm very grateful for is this openness to spirit. You know, it was more when people asked me what I believe growing up, it was more about like the demonstrations, you know, well, we raise our hands well, we speak in tongues. Well, we, you know, we do these things and, right. and, um, and so, to, but as I went, got older, um, I really got into, you know, of course for me to go the opposite direction, we'd be get to go into Sola Scriptura and reformed and, but then that discounted so many of my experiences and it mm. led to a lot of confusion. And so what I feel like your book did for me was it validated some of my views about scripture. Like when you, you said Pentecostals cannot hold to inerrancy without compromising their distinct hermeneutical vantage point and all that such a move would entail for their understanding of God knowledge that, nah, you know, I mean, that resonated with me. Um, but I also think that um, your understanding of mysticism being one of encounter and how that can be such a, a, a common ground that we can meet on. You know, um, I actually went through a Zen period and I've talked to Aaron about this. This was on a previous podcast when I was really in a confused state of mind and trying to explore different ways. But this Zen Mountain Monastery that is in Trimper, New York, actually used Evelyn Underhill's book, Mysticism, for their book i mean for like when they get into the mystical tradition they use that book and one of the things i think i find that's good about being raised the way i was is that um when i can you know i can sit with a sufi i can sit with a hindu i can sit with buddhist and we meet on experience first and then we unpack that rather than coming at them with the club of doctrine and, and all of that not saying that it has to be one or the other but it's so good to know that I don't, you know, I don't have to first meet with telling them, you know, where they're wrong. Um, and so uh, I just know that, that, that for me, um, uh, I have never had a, a problem with, with the personal experience and the personal aspect of God and the experience of spirit. Um, and so for that, I'm grateful. And, 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 you know, I could go on and on about like how I feel like your book helped me clarify some things, but I really do think it's a gift for people who grew up the way I did, where you got to experience both the good and the bad. Um, uh, and so just from a personal standpoint, because I'm not the theologian here, 
uh, I always want to thank you um, for writing the book because it really helped me to integrate these things um, where there was kind of this, um, you know, I had these compartments of my life and they began to become more unified. Um, and the other thing I, I would say too, is that, is that as far as Pentecostalism being a mystical, a Christian mystical tradition, um, I'm curious, do you think that um, the purgative, illuminative, and unitive way applies to to it? And also, do you think that there's a lack of the mysticism of the Eucharist in, in, in Pentecostalism? Just curious. Well, thank you for sharing a bit uh, of your story, Mark. Um, and thank you for your, your kind words. Um, as far as um, what you were saying about... Um, this these aspects of encounter um but also um the the, the theologizing elements right and, and you're saying that there's there's a positive and also there's there's a negative and um on the one hand i feel like i'm committed to the idea that as human beings who are within time and and at some level we're material right we we're, we're physical um we we cannot escape entirely uh, how we've been shaped, right? I mean, the first impressions that we have, the first experiences that we have, that those set the tone, and and this idea that we can reinvent ourselves and, and and just be something totally new, I just don't think that's true to human nature and to, to what it means to be human, right? Uh, we have histories; those histories impact us. Uh, we don't choose a lot of things that make us who we are. <laughs> Um, and so in light of that, you know, when we experience uh, difficult circumstances or even trauma and we have pain as a result, you know, what do we do with that? And, and how do we pursue a, a path of healing? And, uh, and I, so I appreciate very much uh, you sharing a little bit of your testimony that you're willing to, uh, you, you had the presence of mind and I would say by the, by the aid of the spirit to to not discount everything in the midst of dealing with some tough circumstances, right? Because um, the reality is that life is just very complicated. And and, um, and some people do object to Pentecostalism because they see the excess, they see the abuse, and they say, all right, those are clear evidences that it's wrong, mm -hmm. that it's, it's, it's misleading, etc. And my counter argument is anything that involves humans. That's right. <laughs> right? Absolutely. Is going to get to points of excess and abuse. Uh, show me a religious tradition. Show me a philosophical tradition that hasn't done that at some point. Right. Right. So let's let's stop with the purity standards uh, that are convenient ways to just excuse or ignore traditions that we don't like. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, let, let's, right. let's be honest about them. Um. So it, it is a process, right? And um, I, I go back to this language of spirituality because uh, I'm, I'm, I'm influenced by the work of uh, Stephen Land and, and how he, mm -hmm. he emphasizes Pentecostal spirituality as the ground, as the base for everything that follows. And, um, and just the fact that he, within Pentecostal circles, raised the language of spirituality to some degree of academic accessibility and relevance, mm -hmm. I think is crucial. Uh, and I think that's partly the result of spirituality studies now within the theological academy being increasingly more accepted, right? And in prior decades, maybe that wasn't the case. Um, so in using this language of spirituality, one of the things that 
uh, is available to us well, are different accounts of uh, spirituality, different maybe stages of the spiritual life. And so, yes, in, in reference to the to the three stages that you mentioned, which are, are very popular in mystical literature, um, you know, there is within um, certain features of, of certain dynamics of Pentecostal theologizing that's best based on Pentecostal experience. There, there are these elements of steps, right? And sometimes they're talked about in terms of having experiences, right? And so you mentioned that you were uh, brought up in the Assemblies of God within the the Church of God, Cleveland, um, you know, there was this talk of, of, of three crisis experiences, right? Uh, and, and, and again, there's this logic, all right? You have, you have an initial element, then there's another element of, mm-hmm. of consecration and, and, and of, um, uh, of uh, maturation, and, and then there's an element of power and maturity and so forth. So I think it's very natural within visions of the Christian life um, to, to think about uh, different features or different stages or different elements. We have to be very careful with that um, so that we don't use that as an excuse to marginalize people or to classify them excessively. But we do need, I think ultimately what's at work there is that we need a working sense of what Christian maturity looks like and how Christian maturity can be uh, a move towards right and so what that language does and and the other uh, you know the, the purgative and so forth and then what the language of pentecostals using i think they're trying to get account an account of christian excellence or christian maturity um and and i think that's necessary uh for especially but for all christian traditions but especially for traditions that have rely on on accounts of spirituality to drive their identity and mission you need some sense of what a mature christian looks like and mm-hmm. how, how a person develops in that and it's not just enough in terms of oh we've got the categories fruit of the spirit gifts of the spirit right that <laughs> categories only do so much right we need an account and this is sometimes that it gets missed it's we right. need, all right how do how do those develop in our lives and, and how can we continue to develop uh and mature again by the prompting of the spirit but us in turn responding to the spirit and so forth as far as um a mystical dimensions of the Eucharist. Well, that's one of those matters where I worry about that uh, a particular form of evangelicalizing Pentecostal mm-hmm. theology. Because if you look at the work of, of Chris Green um, and and his early accounts of what how early Pentecostals thought about Pentec- uh, about the Eucharist, uh, there were some mystical dimensions there. You encounter God in the in the Eucharist, and that got lost as people started to try to define and say, "Oh, okay, so it's right. it's something. It's a memorial, right?" And 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 they get caught up in all these controversies that are some at some level not native to the Pentecostal uh, ethos because they're trying to articulate it now, um, but in a way that's not best reflective of their identity. Right. Mm. So it's it's one of those things that, you know, if you want to theologize, you have to theologize that way. It's established. It's it's available. You know, and maybe the initial phase that's understandable, but I think we're at the place now in Pentecostal scholarship where no, we don't have to use uh, these other resources. We actually can claim our own voices to theologize right. things that are true to ourselves. So I think we're in a much better spot uh, in terms of 
Pentecostal theologizing than we were uh, 40, 50 years ago. And I think that's a, that's a great boon for, for people who, uh, like you, Mark, are, are, are have, have these experiences. You want to make sense, and you're trying to connect the head and the heart. And, and, and there are some resources now, and, and I think that's a, a beautiful development um, as a result of things like the Society for Pentecostal Studies, as a result of Pentecostals becoming more and more conversant with theological movements mm -hmm. and traditions and so forth. I think that's really, that kind of leads into the question that I had bef uh, kind of previously, which was, you know, Eucharist. I think, Mark, that was a great question because I think the Eucharist is one of those areas, of course, when you said that there was, you know, language or theology that Pentecostals are ill-fitted to take on from evangelicals, the Eucharist is one of those, right? And um, Dr. Stella, you don't, you may not know, but Chris has been on our podcast quite a few times. He was kind of my co-host for last season, so. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, we, we, we have lots of conversations, and of course, Chris and I were at the same institution teaching for a while. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I think the Eucharist, maybe we can sit with the Eucharist for a second and just hear from you a little bit, Dr. Stella, on on, for those who may not be familiar with what is an evangelical version of the Eucharist or communion that Pentecostals have taken on, and then how might it be ill-fitting, I think would be a good explanation for this difference here between evangelical and Pentecostal. There are different accounts of the sacraments, um, but at, at the very core, uh, uh, at the very core of a sacramental theology is how does God work through um, the material, right? Or a better way of saying it is how 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 does God work through God's creation to reveal God's self, right? So there there are a lot, uh, notions of mediation uh, and so forth. Um, but one of the things that um, and you see this, I learned this from Oliver Davies um, in his work on um, Ulrich Swingley. Hmm. Um, his argument is that with Swingley, you have a figure who is truly now a modern uh, theologian um, and modern in the sense um, that when you talk about uh, uh, the bread and, and the wine or the juice, um, now these are somehow non-theological terms, right? They, they are terms self-standing in and of themselves. There, there's hmm. a, such a naturalization process um, where, where they're atheological, which at some level, um, when you think if, if, if creation is an act of God and, um, so therefore God is connected to creation in a sense, and human beings are created in the image of God. Sure. But there, there are other dimensions. Again, I mentioned like the medieval period and so forth. Other periods, at least in Western history, uh, were more, amenable to the idea that God can work through oil and God can work mm. through bread and God can work through laying on of hands. Um, to say that God can't or to say that God doesn't because these domains now are somehow uh, distinguishable from God and, and maybe um, at some level incompatible with God because they are their own thing. They're all, they're self-sustaining. Right. And so you see here all kinds of, of again, broader intellectual accounts uh, uh, em emerging within um, the Western world. 
Um, so as a result, you lose that possibility of thinking, all right, so can God work through um, so through these things? These They appear very common things, but God can sanctify them and manifest God's self through them. Mm. In other words, there's an availability of God's presence uh, that uh, where, of course, critiques will say, well, anything and everything can be a sign of God. But if God is here, if God is at work in the world, then who are we to start putting some limits as to what God can do? Right. right. So with, with certain sacramentologies, if they're really driven by that intellectual culture of thinking of nature, a lot of this is, is how do we navigate the nature, supernature distinction? Uh, if, if, if things like the world are, are such that they, they, um, that God, God's presence cannot be mediated or God chooses not to, to mediate God's presence to those things because they're distinguishable, um, then that very quickly um, makes something like the Eucharist um, at some level uh, deontological. You do it because God command, Christ commands right. to do it. And that's all, that's why you do it. Right. So there's a memorial, there's a memorial feature. You do it because it's good to do. <laughs> right. I mean, that's how, how the, the slippage happens in terms of intellectual registers, prior definitions of how God works in the world, what's nature and so forth. Then the slippage happens in terms of, all right, so this is what it means doctrinally. You'd have to say then in light of all that previous work, uh, that's something like the Eucharist. You you couldn't encounter God there. God wouldn't reveal God's self there. These right. are uh, material things, etc. And frankly, according to my view, um, by de-theologizing or or um, or um, uh, disenchanting um, the world. Uh, uh, some people use the language of demythologizing it, but by making the world uh, uh something at some level independent of god inseparable from god that god doesn't isn't active and working through it then you lose a beautiful and i would say necessary resource for growth in the christian tradition because yeah. what does it mean to be partaking of the lord's supper um it can it can function as an encounter with god nourishment for the road i mean it's this reminder that yeah we 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 are we're beings that, that require food at some level but there's also such a thing as spiritual food and that can be uh be thought of in terms of the yeah. use so that the regularity is not oh here we go being legalistic again but it's actually a gift from god uh, to help us along the journey to encounter god through it um these are possible things that are lost so that um as a result of spirituality that not that that doesn't have the available something regular something that meets us where we are something that 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 uh, works with things that are consecrated by God for special purposes it just has a, all kinds of impact on our daily lives impacts on our imagination of where God is and what God is doing it's a loss I would say it's yeah. a serious loss and so that would be partly what's at stake here with certain uh, theologies of of the Eucharist. I, like inside of me, I'm exploding at the moment because I've got mm. so many thoughts mm. and like, mm -hmm. and, and particularly, <laughs> particularly because Dr. Stell, you know, something you wrote in your book on pneumatology, I think it was your, your, I think the handbook, the, you know, the guide for the perplexed, I think is what it's called. And, and I used it in one of my theology classes one time and we went through this and we get to this section where you talk about this natural supernatural divide, Right. And you said something in there that 
I mean, for me, just turned everything upside down. And then once the students in the class started getting it, all of a sudden they started realizing how their language had failed to discuss things like the Eucharist, which particularly is when you mentioned, like, we use this language of here's the natural. And then if something happens like a healing or speaking in tongues, or then we give it this, this, this nomenclature of supernatural, right? It's something other than natural. And then you kind of flip it on the head and go, actually, what really what we're saying is that's the most natural thing. And everything else is kind of the other than natural, right? Like, and, and I think that's almost kind of summing up a little bit of what you're saying here with the Eucharist is that we tend to think of it, especially as Pentecostals grew up with this communion. You know, I, I still remember every altar at every Pentecostal church growing up, do this in remembrance, right? Very clear, like, this is just a memorial meal. Mm -hmm. It's just bread and juice because mm -hmm. it was never wine because we didn't have fun in that <laughs> way, right? But like, but then I think of like oil and in growing up in Pentecostal circles, like oil was such a sacred thing and, and there was something I don't, I don't even want to call it in some sense magical. Like it sounds weird to use that terms in terms of Christian, but like if you were praying over something, you had to have oil. Yeah. Right. Like, and because there was something about the oil, the act, the, the, the oil itself, putting it on whatever it was that in some way, even though we didn't say this, we did it as if God is enacting something through that oil into the person to the, whatever we're consecrating, whatever it may be, it wasn't just an act, but we would do that with communion. And it was kind of that, I'll shut up now, but I'm just saying like, this thing's yeah. kind of like throwing all these things into perspective when we start thinking about them, right? Yeah. It's like, on the one hand, there's this appreciation for the physicality of the faith, right? There's a sense in which it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's bodies coming together, together, things being eaten, things being drunk, people being touched, you know, and, and that, that's, a, th those are beautiful dynamics, right? Um, I think they're important dynamics. And yet you have this iconoclastic maybe tendency lurking, right? Uh, in terms of when you start to try to teach it or to formalize it or to conceptualize it. And so, so it, it, it's as if, I think you're highlighting this and, and it coincides with what you said earlier. There's, there are these competing visions, potentially, right? In terms of how God works in the world, um, how, to, how to think of what's appropriate or what's faithful. But yeah, back to that um, quote from the, the pneumatology volume. And, um, and I really, I think I started thinking along these lines, partly through the influence of James K.A. Smith. Um, uh, when, when we use a language of natural and supernatural, this language comes loaded already with a lot of assumptions, about what's normative, of what what's what's possible, etc. Um, you know, just in terms of if, when we start describing what's human nature, mm. <laughs> you know, and people say, "Oh, yeah, it's 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 an, it's part of human nature uh, to 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 be jealous." You know, you step back. What are we saying about about human nature? What are we if if we if we assume those kinds of things just because we see it uh, and it's available? Um, that doesn't necessarily uh, uh, allow us to have a, a, a complete picture of what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to live as a human life excellently, right? Right. Uh, and so in terms of, of this aspect, for, for 
for Pentecostals, I think lurking in at least the way that they live their lives is that these things like miracles, these things like God showing up and, you know, in, in a worship service, those are to be expected. Um, that is just, that's the way the world is. Yeah, and that's why for some people who go into other traditions, they're, they're very staunch Pentecostals and they go to other services. They, oh, they, that service was dead. <laughs> That's right. That uh, didn't work. Or, you know, how can maybe even some extreme forms that how can even people be having a, a Christian life, a vital Christian life in light of that? Because they, their sense of what's normal, their sense of what's natural as part of this, uh, it's constituted by all of these different aspects. Right. But then as we go and use this language uh, in other domains. Right. And, and and how those traffic in terms of the history of this nature, super nature distinction. So things start getting conflated, they start getting mixed and so forth. And um, yes, I think for Pentecostals, um, a, I use this language, I think in this book as well. It is natural. It is, it makes sense. It is our world to say that this world is a spirit drenched world hmm. yeah the spirit is alive the spirit is at work uh we just need by god's grace to have the eyes to see what the spirit is doing yeah and to put all these constraints ahead of time oh the spirit can't work in this way spirit can't use that the spirit can't say that um in some sense that that is that could be instances of resisting the spirit yeah or opposing the spirit and that's another feature too that i've come to appreciate even more so about the Pentecostal tradition by writing this book is that in the best, in the most faithful forms of, of Pentecostal expression, there is, there, there is this sense of, of humility tied to anticipation, hmm. right? Uh, this sense that I don't know what God is up to, but I want to know, right? Uh, yeah. I, I, I don't, I, I don't pretend to understand it all, but there is a sense in which that that's a that's a beautiful thing, and and God can speak through a child, right? And there are these cases too. I mean, it's just a, it's just a it's a fascinating thing when you look at the testimonies. Some of this was wild, but in a beautiful way. Children yeah. preaching, right? Children laying hands on the elderly, and you start thinking about the prophetic visions of Joel and so forth. You realize, wow, this world that that God makes possible it, it is a it, it defies various features of, of of the limits and stratifications that that humans and maybe even human sin has has put on the world yeah um, god's not bound by that god's spirit's not bound by that and we might have the first tendency to say spirit can't do that or won't there's this possibility no spirit can and could uh, do that yeah so it, it leaves you anticipating what's God going to do next, right? And so then this language that, that Mark mentioned about transformation, now you're just anticipating, you know, things can be different. Um, right. Why? Because I've, I've come to believe that things have changed in my life and in change, change in other people's lives. They've been able to be delivered of things. Um, you can see tangible differences in people's character. If that's the case, Right. And go back to the human nature. People say, oh, we, people can't change. And you have evidence a person has changed by the grace of God. Then you start wondering what else can change. Right? Yeah. And it just becomes very, very uh, uplifting and beautiful all at once. Yeah. So so I, 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 um, I mean, I think for me, it's it's uh, the word incarnation keeps coming up. Um, the incarnational aspect of of reality and um, 
when we speak of when you guys were talking about oil, you know, coming out of the Episcopal tradition and then moving into this. My mom took me to the first service where she said, you know, you can say amen anytime you want to in this service. And I sat down on the floor underneath the church pew and just randomly said amen throughout the service, you know, because I thought I'm participating, you know. Um, but as a result of that, you know, I, I just remember this kind of pushback and and downgrading of Episcopal worship as dead, you know, a vain repetition ritual and the truth is is that what i realized is that now that i'm in in the anglican tradition is that um i didn't know what was going on in the liturgy i did not know that it was so christocentric i did not know what was going on so so i was judging and and making assumptions about experiences that i didn't know about and 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 a theological approach to things that i had no idea and so when we talk about eyes to see and ears to hear for me to show up, you know, liturgy is the work of the people. For me to show up and be present to that means I have to bring a certain aspect of me being connected with spirit so that I can actually understand and participate. When I take in the body and blood, I am, it's a mystical thing. May I become that which I am consuming hmm. and go out and be, that is actually to me being filled with the spirit. That is what it's about. Um, and I would say that the other thing, too, is that, you know, I remember when I started getting into wordless, silent prayer, centering prayer, whatever, you you know, I tried to introduce some of my family to it. Boy, the suspicions. And and and, and <laughs> what are you doing, Mark? Why are you doing that? And, and, and I realized, like, like, when I would say that, they would say, I can't, I, I, I just can't be still like that. I can't, you know. Because there's this dramatic element that we think for the spirit to be active, it has to have this, you know, uh, uh, immediacy to it, you know, but there's this be still and know that I am God. I had the spiritual director. She was a retired, well, I say retired, she was a, she was a Catholic nun. And she said, Mark, you're hardwired for adoration because of the way you were raised, because you can sit and you can be quiet and you can experience this presence. And so it's it you know to 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 remind myself that the spirit is also in stillness yes right that is so important and and i think i did not realize how much i hungered for that until i began to go on to this um hermitage in big sur once a year and sit with the monks and and be part of this you know the catholic rhythm and all of that and and realizing that um i had i guess equated a dramatic effect with the spirit being present as opposed right. to right. me yeah. becoming almost a sense of a, of a, you know, they say God abhors a vacuum. I don't know if that's true because the, when I'm emptied out, there's, I can be filled. And for me to do that now, it's, it's like, I have to sit with uh, in, in this silence. And so the silence works on me, me. And I think the other thing is that, that, you know, reading your book, I, I realized that the approach that I was taught about reading scripture is way more electio divina way of doing it and encounter with the mm -hmm. presence within the words, as opposed to, a, you know what I mean? So, yeah. Yeah. and it's incarnational, you know? Um, so the gift I think I've had is that I can take that same kind of spontaneity and openness into a liturgical liturgical service, okay. not to say I'm get, getting, I'm better, but I may be getting more out of it than other people who have just been raised in it and take it for granted.
Well, that's the thing, right? That uh, this goes back to the, the features about being humans in time and, and being shaped by our by our our backgrounds. We also have expectation sets. Yes, right? and so absolutely. The idea is that you know I stress when it I stress in Pentecostalism this openness, uh, right, and anticipation. But also, that's the positive side. The negative side could be yeah, openness and expectation for certain things, mm-hmm. right? And other things, not so much. But that idea that, that the spirit is is alive and well and active, that will even um, push up against uh, Pentecostal assumptions about what the spirit can do, right? Yeah. That's the thing. We cannot control. No one can control the spirit or anticipate uh uh, that that the spirit might not do something to uh, to defy our expectations, which are just simply that our expectations. That's right. So that's it's, it's, it's part of the challenge, but I think that's part of the beauty. And on the same relation to that too, uh, I, I highlight uh, Saint John of the Cross in the in the volume uh, because in his vision of the dark night of the soul, I, part of this came up for me as well uh, because I took from reading that you know our expectations can become idolatrous. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, yeah. And yeah. it could be part of the maturation process to say, yeah, this is what you like. This is what you want. This is what makes a good church service for you now. But there, you know, God can be saying to us, but I want to show you more of who I am and for you to develop more so that you don't feel like you need those things to see me at work in the world. And so now there's this challenge. All right. I want certain things, uh, but it's not about my wants. It's yeah. about uh, wanting God and, and God manifesting God's self to us. It's ultimately about God, not about us. And that's one of the things I, I think is a beautiful um, uh, lesson that we can draw from St. John of the Cross uh, for those of us who really are inclined to those mm-hmm. uh, very uh, manifest uh, expressions of the faith that, that we, we love and enjoy the challenges. Okay. As we move forward, uh, do we rely on them and to be substitutes at some level for God's very presence. Yeah. It's like it's like we we are more prone to want the experiences of God rather than the God of experience. Yes, that's right. a beautiful way to say it. Yeah. Dr. Costello, I mean, clearly we could just keep going. Uh and I would love to, but I know you have a hard stop, so I want to be faithful to that. Um we've talked a lot about that book, Pentecostalism as a Christian Mystic Tradition, which anyone who's grown up in Pentecostalism Pentecostalism and is curious or anyone who just is curious about Pentecostalism, I would really encourage, but any other books or books out, you know, coming out or have come out or anything that people can keep up with your work on? Yeah. um, So there's that volume I just edited. Uh, It came out, I think two years ago, the TNT Clark Companion to Pneumatology. Um, It's a very helpful reference work. Um, that attempts to account for the work of the spirit across denominational lines and across um, racial ethnic lines, and so um, that that is something. Um, uh, currently, I'm I'm working uh, with a colleague on on certain proposals related to a pneumatology of scripture, mm. uh, thinking about um, scripture as a theological category, but in pneumatological terms yeah um so that that's one project among others too uh but uh it's a real great privilege to to be here with you thank you for having me i really had a great time oh thank you so much for doing it i mean it was our pleasure and yes hopefully we'll have you back at some point in the future i love it thank you all right mark uh it's just us we're alone now um (laughs) we had to say goodbye (laughs) 
I was like, what's the creepiest way I can say this to start, right? (laughs) Um, Alone with, yeah, all the listeners. Um, Yeah, I I wanted to take a second to decompress with you because, you know, you and I, we've we've talked a lot about this subject um, because you and I have have, uh, not similar trajectories, but kind of we're in a similar place now, right? Where we're both kind of in the Anglican tradition. We both... At, at at a point we're probably done with our Pentecostal tradition and then we recognize that there was more to it, right? Like we or language that actually gave us understanding for what we had grown up in. Um so I just want to hear your thoughts. How are you feeling? What are you thinking? How am I feeling and what am I thinking? Um hmm. well that was wonderful for one thing. I just really thoroughly mm-hmm. enjoyed it. Uh but what he ended on when he said that he appreciated the ministry, and I guess I'll say this to you, Aaron, is that, you know, um, there are certain, I, I guess, episodes that are more pastoral, you know, than than uh, theological. And, and I do think that folks that are coming from this Pentecostal background um, where there was some damage, let's be honest, I and mean, yeah. there's beautiful things about it, but there's some, you know, there's a strangeness to it to where like I almost always thought that for the spirit to be active, you had to act really weird. Right. Yeah. You know, and, and to see also the, the origin, the origin of, of these experiences in reading this book helped me a lot, but more than anything, um, it made me less afraid of my own experience now. Okay. So, so I got to a point where I just did not trust my personal experience anymore because if I can deceive myself so easily or be deceived so easily, um, then how can I trust anything that I'm experiencing, which yeah. is a really difficult way to have any kind of relationship with transcendence. If you don't trust anything that's going on, <laughs> right. uh, you know what I mean? So, yeah. so yeah. it's just really, it's, it's difficult, but you know, to, to have had, and you and I have talked about about this, to have had the experience that I had that that was more of a reawakening at that monastery in Big Sur where um, I was struck wordless, you know, mm-hmm. and where I was less, I was left with this um, sense of, of, uh, of acknowledgement that I had forgotten. I had forgotten um, God, I guess you yeah. could say. Um it put it reframed my past in a way that I could begin to pull from it um, experiences that I treasure now, whereas yeah. I used to be suspicious and cynical about it. The gift I think that this book gave me is that it has made me less cynical. Hmm. Yeah. You know, yeah. And, and a conversation like we just had and, and it's made me less cynical. And there, and if there's anything that 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 anyone go, undergoing reconstruction might be suffering from, it is a it's it's cynicism is one of the first things to come up, and yeah. everything has to come through the filter of cynicism, through the lens of cynicism. So I'm not really absorbing my past uh, in in really a healthy way. It's moving through first the filter of cynicism. Yeah, and when I deconstruct with cynicism. There's no, there's no chance of transcending and including those things, you know? Right. And I think the gift too, for me is just that, you know, when I've talked to my Catholic friends who are raised Catholic, I talked to my friends who are raised Presbyterian reform. Um, 
when I talk about the sweetness of God's presence, sometimes I think that, that I might, I feel like I'm talking a foreign language. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And, and I'm so grateful that I had, um, in my upbringing that, that, that was not abnormal. Right. That was something that was the norm, you know? Yeah. And I think that word sweetness is really telling for me, um, surprise and sweetness i think for me whenever it's a it's a sense of the presence of god because when i'm surprised by it i know i'm not manufacturing it right and when there's a sweetness to it uh as cynical as i can be there's a softening of the edges then i know it's working you know yeah yeah it's it's really interesting you say about cynicism and deconstruction because I, i i think you're right i think in some ways cynicism not for all but there's definitely a trend, at least anecdotally, in store, and you know, friends who have deconstructed or people I know that deconstructed that cynicism is often the roadblock to reconstruction. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I could say that it was probably nearly the roadblock for me and some of my reconstruction for Absolutely. sure. And you know, it's interesting because I had a, an interesting experience in which I think that time where the spirit led me to actually work and confront my own cynicism actually was by by and this sounds weird right but by going to this church that is everything that i sometimes believe is wrong with the church right like this mega church you know smoke and lights and and a lot of manufactured spirituality and so mm-hmm. on i mean we could go down the line right on you, you think of a mega church and it embodies that and even leaving uh, after this one time visiting, I, I actually felt this is where you're supposed to be. And I was angry, right? Like, this is everything that is wrong, right? And what was interesting is after, I don't know, two years there and, and being involved and engaged and serving and so on and so forth, I still left going, wow, this is, there's this megachurch model is so problematic on so many levels. But what it did for me was it actually broke that cynicism to say, this is all the other reasons, like these are all the bad things about it that are more uh, narcissistic or, you know, whatever it might be in terms of kind of the person. It's about the structure. It's about the people. It's about the leader. It's about, you know, all these other Mm -hmm. things that church isn't about. And it broke that cynicism, even if I could walk away and going, well, I have reconstructed in so many of my thoughts. And it didn't actually change me going, this is a problematic ecclesiological structure but it actually was that moment of going ah i can still see it as problematic but i can also still be loving and kind and Mm -hmm. you know what i mean these things that are actually the spirit um so i think i'm i'm with you in that right that kind of cynicism had to be broken and i do think uh daniel's casella's book really did help in that almost intellectual, for me, that intellectual cynicism I had towards Pentecostalism, even though like, you know, you know, my story, right? I, you know, I grew up Church of God, jumped in the Assemblies of God, teaching at an Assemblies of God institution, like, but had wonderful colleagues there who were very, very deep in their spirituality and the way that they could talk about it. But I hadn't yet myself gotten to the place that I could intellectually put these things together. Mm-hmm. Right. And I, I think his book, particularly for a generation of 
of us who are maybe not first generation, but more second, third, even fourth generation Pentecostals gave language to go, you felt this, but you've heard this, but I'm allowing you to feel this and I'm going to give you new language to help you understand what you felt. Like, like you said, just it's, I always say it, it saved me as a Pentecostal. Yeah. It allowed me to stay a Pentecostal in the way that I experience things. And and that's weird to say, stay a Pentecostal. I don't think I could ever like take that away. Just like what you and, and Dr. Cassell were saying about those are our experiences that make who we are. But mm-hmm. it, it, again, it gave me that sweetness. Like I could look back fondly and I can also engage fondly. Like in my turn to Anglican tradition to go through the prayer with people, right? Our, our and, morning and, liturgies and night liturgies and feel the spirit in such a beautiful way that I've never felt. Before. And, and you can yeah. let go with, in a way that's, that's not as bitter. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, like to let go in a way of, this is a healthy letting go, not a, you know, I got to get out of here, man. This stuff is, you right. know what I mean? And, and, and then to, to take these, like, like what we do when we look back at our past, we take these broad strokes of wiping it out as if, you know, there was nothing redeeming about it or good about it. And so, um, you know, just, just like the simple thing of, of when I ask you, on one of one of the times um do you still speak in tongues you know and mm-hmm. and you're like yeah and i was like oh my god i think i think i do too you know and and, <laughs> and um and i think you know just reading his book if 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 nothing else it got me reflecting back on my upbringing my experiences you know my my you know the actual evidential changes i saw take place in my family at, as each person had this experience of what we used to call baptism in the spirit, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, my sister didn't get it until she was around 17. Believe me, there were a lot of people trying to knock her down and get her slain <laughs> in the spirit, <laughs> right. you know, and, and right. resisting, you know. Yeah. But, but but when it hit for her, she was like a – and she's been a different person ever since. Yeah. Like it was astounding, you know. Um, even my dad who grew cynical of so much of it, when my sister came home, he noticed a difference in her and asked her what had happened. He said, she said, you know, in an embarrassing way in front of our stepmother that she had, you know, been baptized in the Holy spirit and was speaking in tongues. My dad actually said, um, there's nothing like, there's almost nothing better than hearing a beautiful prayer language as we used to call it, you know? Um, and I think about that as, you know, the sound of things. Um, and for me, you know, sound means so much, you know, um, and, and how, when it hit me, I was, you know, at this camp and I was probably 13 or something. Um, and I, I, I was caught up in it, but I had been around that before and and it hadn't happened yet or whatever. Um, and so I say all that because when I used to think about those things, I got embarrassed. Hmm. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like I felt yeah. an embarrassment, like, like this, this is an intellectual, um, um, ghetto, you know? Right. Like, like there's, you know, this, this is nothing but manipulation and that kind of thing. But the truth is, is that, you know, Ram Dass says altered states should lead to altered traits. Hmm. And the truth of it is, is that when I see in my own family, from my aunt, from my mom, my dad, my grandfather, my grandmother, my sister, um, 
there was a before and after in their life and it is the that experience yeah. right so i could so instead of saying they were full of crap and that they were easily manipulated and they believed in magic you know i can look at it and really see that there is an evidence of change in their life there's there's right. that before and after and so um when i read in this book about the the epistemology of, of pentecostalism is is really like experiential you know yeah. um uh how do i know well because man i got knocked down at the altar the other day and i felt the mm. spirit of god like that's how i know you know how do you know that you you've been loved by god well because um i spontaneously began to speak in tongues and blah whatever i mean it, it's like my experiences began to feel less naive and less um uh, uh like i said you know kind of um uh, intellectually embarrassing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. more, more valid, you know, now I can still look at it as an adult and I can say, yeah, that time that I sat around and said I was drunk in the spirit with everybody in the youth group, uh -huh, you know, <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, you can honestly reflect on those experiences. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Like and I can take those with me and realize that, man, you, you know how I feel about some, you know, the word systematic theology when he said that we can make an idol out of our expectations, we can make an idol out of our systematic theology too. Yeah. to systematize things as if the spirit is, is not allowed to do certain things as if now the spirit is trapped within these limitations that we choose to live in, you know? Yeah. And, and I think the, or that we choose to put the spirit in. And I think reading his book, man, made me really um, thankful that I was, introduced to the spirit being much more wild and free yeah. than, than, uh, you know, when I went through my reform phase, I mean, it just felt like the reform just like, nope, uh -uh, nope, nope, yeah. nope, nope, no way. You know, yeah. and that's when I began to question everything about my, the validity of any of my experiences. Right. And you know, it's, what's interesting. And again, back to that, like maybe another example of that, like evangelical language that Pentecostals often use versus what Pentecostals actually think or experience or feel. That's right. Uh, you know, I think of speaking in tongues, particularly because I think of some of our conversation, particularly in, in relation to that expectation of what the spirit will or won't do. And you think about, you know, the, even the tradition that I was a part of till recently, which said in order to say that you've had this experience of the spirit, it has to be, that's, it has to be shown through the speaking of tongues. Uh -huh. right? That that has yep. to happen. Otherwise, we can say for sure you have not. Assembly of God, man, that's right? me. <laughs> right, exactly. So, and what's interesting is that is the evangelicalization of Pentecostalism in so many ways. That this is that experience. This is that proof of the experience, and we we are resistant to allow the Spirit to work in any other way in relation to this because we read x amount of passages and it's and it's i mean the, the argument is usually in what's normative in the book of acts right like so anytime this was talked about it was all but two followed up with speaking in tongues and we use that as kind of that you know epistemological it has to be this way because all but two times it says they were speaking in tongues rather than recognizing that that is the way that they were experiencing That's, the spirit in mm -hmm. those moments. 
And that story should tell us that the spirit works in unexpected ways and unexpected languages and unexpected uh, scenarios. And yet we, instead of allowing the spirit to be the spirit, we say the spirit has to work this way, which is antithetical to what the spirit does. Right. Um, and that's where, that's where that there's that oddity. It's, it's somewhat of what I've written in my thesis for my dissertation and, and the use of the word faith, right? Like, we use this word to describe something rather than recognizing that the word itself is actually the uh, the the almost the recognition of something that has already happened, mm-hmm. right? Instead, we talk about it as the way into that thing versus the explanation of or the words that we try to use to say what has happened. So, you know, same with speaking in tongues, right? It is the proof of something that's happened versus recognizing it's the working out of something that's happened in a certain way. And I think, I mean, it's easy for me to go down, way down a tangent in this, but, and I don't want to get down there, but there is something to this understanding of the spirit that actually, to put it in a, you know, just a regular way, right? Allows God to be God, allows us to be us. And recognize when we are participating with God in beautiful and healthy ways versus demanding that participation be X, Y, or Z. That's right. And, and I, I think just also to bring it back to like just kind of a normal way of saying something is, um, you know, when I'm 12 and 13 years old and I'm confused about my parents' divorce and whatever's going on and I'm at this Christian camp and I have this dramatic thing and I'm seeing people slaying the spirit and I'm, you know, and I'm the, I begin speaking in tongues and all of that, you know, that's. And then fast forward to Big Sur in 2014, where I'm on a silent retreat and it's quiet. Yeah. And I slow down enough to the speed, I guess, of the spirit, I would say, that that I could actually be moved in a way that um, that led to transformation. That like, yep. but what I, what I want to say though is that what's in common there is that God met me in the wound. Hmm. And if yeah. I don't stay connected with my need, brokenness, the humility that comes with that, you know, cause, cause there's got to be that. I mean, for me to have this real sense of, it, it just feels like the times that I've, I've maybe can say, okay, that I think that that was an authentic experience. What was common was there was a, a gift of desperation that came with it. There yeah. was, there was this need and longing, right? And so that's my participation is to say, I'm nothing but a real longing for, right? For that, because if God is the ground of my being, right? If that's who I am, I am made in the image of God, and my 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 goal here is to be growing the likeness. Um, then it. What I'm learning is that, you know, all these things I get down on myself on defects of character, blah, 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 blah. It's the very place that God uses, I think, to come and meet me. Yeah. And, 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 you know, that's the problem when you, when you get really into theology or when you get it really into the experience of how you think the spirit's supposed to work. What's one of the first things that goes, you know, it's, it's, it's the the humility of I need. Right. This is a, I love that. And this is like a very deep dive into my podcast from, I'm actually just looking 
from I think season one. I mean, it was like the eleventh episode. I had I had a friend of mine on n- named Andre Henry, and we were talking about race, and we were talking about race in the church, and we were talking about you know a, a lot of these really these issues that can become inflammatory for certain groups of people really quick, right? And he made this statement, and I've applied it to so many different things now uh, because it 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 kind of goes along with what you're saying. You know, he, he made this kind of analogy. He's like, we were all stuffed in my tiny office at the university and there was like four of us in there and hot and, you know, whatever. And he was saying, you know, if, if I were to have come into this room, having just eaten an onion and garlic bagel and we're all talking and you're smelling my breath and you were to go, whoa, Andre, you know, your breath stinks. Here's a mint. You know, he's got one of two options. He can either go, how dare you? Don't call this out. Don't, you know what I mean? And make you suffer through my own terrible breath where I can say, hey, thanks for showing me something that is wrong. And yes, let me correct it with this mint, right? Like it's a very like rudimentary analogy, but I think about even what you're just saying there and the fact that of God actually engaging with us in our brokenness, we have to be at a place that actually says this thing is wrong and I'm thankful, and this is kind of the other part of his analogy was, he could either, you know, you could either be thankful that someone has saying, hey, your breath stinks, here's a mint. Hey, thanks for exposing that. Let me, let me correct it. Or we can be resistant to it and pretend like it doesn't exist. Yes. Right? And I think so much of us in, in, in our kind of Christian world have, have been on that side of things, whether it's uh, communal sins, such as racism or prejudices or, you know, even uh, the way that the church has tended, especially the evangelical megachurch, the poor and, and the marginalized, how we've treated these groups, we can either say, yes, we have to be fixed. Yes, there are there is brokenness. Yes, God, where do we need to be fixed? Or we can just go, no, 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 we're okay, right? Like, no, no, this is fine. We, we don't have those issues. And, and God doesn't overcome our our free, our human freedom to go, no, 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 I'm going to break you <laughs> to fix this, right? I think that's a poor perception of God because God is not going to say, hey, I'm going to break you right now. You don't have a choice in this because he never takes away that human freedom, right? right? We have to be able to willing to go, there's something broken here and participate with God in what's... It's, what's a, yeah, it's, it's cooperation and participation, right? you know? I mean... um so yeah, I mean, I I feel like I feel like it, it was uh, you know wonderful to talk to him and um and he listened to him really, um, because uh, I'm still unpacking you know my yeah. Pentecostal upbringing and uh, the things that came along with it you know um, um, but I I just feel like you know to remember that it's both and all the time it's both yeah. and. It's both and it's both and it's both and um, because my life is my life. And to pretend like a huge part of it didn't exist or didn't affect right. me in a big way is, is like, that's so dishonest. Or even know? worse that it was all, all bad. And right? then, that it was all bad. You know, yeah. it, it, it can be both and right. There can still be a tension between the two, but you know, I think that my spirituality is learning to, to, to live within the tension, you know? Right. Uh, the tension of of what was wrong with it and and what was good with it, you know. Um, right. And also, I just think gratitude, man. You know, for me, it's like like 
when I lose my gratitude, I know that I'm losing um, humility and uh, and I'm pretending like my life is not actually contingent. It's just mine. Right. Yeah. And so I'm, I can no longer be grateful um, because there's something bad in my past. You know, yeah. the older I get, the more grateful I am for those things. Now, I'm not I'm not one of those guys that thinks like because I learned some wise lessons, I'm really glad that guy died. You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah. It's like, I hate that kind of, you know, thing. But but the truth is, is that um, I'm actually, man, you know, the older I get, the more I smile when I think about those things, you know, yeah. rather, rather than angry or sad. Yeah. Yeah. I'm with you, man. Yeah. And and I, this is where I feel like we can just sit here and just talk about it and keep unpacking it because it's, it's, you know, and it's not just his work, but it was almost the gateway drug, right? To recognizing so many of these, these things about ourselves or about our upbringings or about Pentecostalism that have been, at least speaking for myself, but I think you might agree, a beautiful, a beautiful part of the journey and a reshaping of the way that the journey is going to now go forward, right? I mean, something that he said, you know, about this, you know, it, the, you know, the idea that the, the intellect, the way that we think about things is the grounding of something else. Uh, even that is the reframing of the way of, that I grew up, right? Because growing up, it was, do you know the right things? And if you know the right things, then you can experience the right ways. Or if you know the right things, then you can, then you can, uh, be sure of, you know, have certainty in so many things. And that, that mystic tradition, that, that kind of Pentecostal experience and feeling and kind of reworks that to go, we can talk about things in slightly different ways and recognize that we're both trying to grab at the same thing. And that's okay. And that, and that should be Right. Cause your experience different, than my experience, you know, and wow, well, we could go way into that. And again, I don't want to, and, but you and, know, and, and relativism uh, and postmodernism, the differences yeah. there and you know, so on and so forth. But yeah. I think it's just a much healthier way to actually move forward. Um, and makes us more generous, more with more humility. Right. And, and open. I mean, really for me, it's like, it's like, I'm just the openness of things because, you know, um, uh, I'll just say this and, you know, we can close it up, but I, I, I feel like, um, when I was at my wits end and I started recovery. Okay. Yeah. And I didn't know how I was going to work these steps that we talk about and, 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 you know, um, someone just, just broke it down. He, they said, Mark, let God be the experience you have working these steps. <laughs> yeah. And, and some of these steps are, taking inventory of yourself, looking at yourself in a real honest way, sharing it with another person, which is confession, um, coming to grips with these patterns and these stories you made up about yourself and letting go of those narratives, making amends to people for your past and for the harms, right? Uh, embracing a ritual and an ongoing daily routine of prayer and meditation. Um, that is theopraxis, right? right. It's right. not theology, all right? And so and so I do think that there's a praxis to Pentecostalism, but I what I what I also believe is that um the other I always say that undergoing God, right? I undergo mm -hmm. God. Yeah. And I think it's because of of being raised Pentecostal that that the idea of divinization, theosis 
the orthodox view of salvation um the mystical element of that i just had no problem with it you know mm-hmm. yeah you know yeah. i mean we can get get into the details of it but i'm just telling you like for me it's just it's that is very mystical and i don't have a problem with it because for me to participate in the life of the spirit was no problem because I was actually taught if you're not doing it, something's wrong with you, you know? Yeah. Yeah, man. I appreciate you being here. I appreciate you, uh, kind of decompressing after we let Dr. Estelle go. Yeah. Um, and I know, I know we'll have you back. I know you'll be back. Um, and I, I say this as a plug for your work. I know you've got a new album coming out January. Mm Mm-hmm. I'm only slightly, you know, hurt that I haven't heard it yeah. as big of a fan as I am. I, you know, just yeah. there's that small part of me, yeah. but I can wait. I can wait till January. Yeah. Uh, but I'm super excited because I don't know if just... you want anyone about the album at all. And kind of like, because I know there are people who have been introduced to your band through. I'll, I'll just say this. Uh, it's a reaction to people sleeping to our music. This record. <laughs> but what beautiful sleep. I mean, I've, I, I don't have a slept, problem. I don't but, have a problem with it. I mean, look, man, you know, like people can study and read and and meditate and pray and all that, you know. But like, we also have this other side of us that's not as orchestrated and beatless. And so, yes, that record is coming out Thursday, and I mean, uh, in January, and we have a lot of things that are coming with the rollout. So, I think the first single will come out sometime in November. So, oh, so I don't um, have to wait that long. Well, yeah. Right. I mean, I mean, I think once the first thing was out and the name of the record is released and all that, I'll I'll send you the whole album. Now okay. that that is uh, <laughs> the best news I've heard in a while, my friend. <laughs> you haven't heard it yet, so you know let's let's not get our you know. Uh, I'll be honest. What, what, what were you talking about? Expectations, right? right. Yeah, right. Yeah, you know me. I'll be honest. You know, I'm open to whatever this album may be. Yes, there you go. All right. Oh, man. Well, I appreciate you. Um, Thanks yeah. for having but, me, man. I mean, you know, it was fun. Uh, it's fun to be the uh, non-theologian among theologians just to, um, you know, I, you know, I like I, that. I said this at the top, and I'll still say it again. I've had a lot of conversations with people who are not theologically trained in the sense of the academy and, you know, getting degrees and so on and so forth. And... There have only ever been two, funny enough, both musicians, um, who have actually. What does that say about us? I don't. I don't know. But but who have actually, like, engaged me intellectually, and not that I'm. I'm. I'm I've got to be very clear. I'm dumb. Okay, so you are not dumb. But but what I mean by that is like, actually engaging in theological conversations that impressed me that i was like oh my gosh you've read who and you've read what and you actually understand like and you've read people i haven't read right like that's kind of and even out of the two you know not to rank but you're 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 number one so (laughs) i i just want to tell you that sometimes i don't know if that's a gift or a sickness so this the reading and the obsession that i've had you know over the years um i mean you talk to any academic and they'll, they'll say it's a good sickness yeah. Yes, it's yeah. a sickness, but you're you're glad to have it, right? I, I am. I'm glad to have that sickness and I'm glad to have the sickness of of having to create, you know. Mm-hmm. 
two yeah. good sicknesses needing to investigate <laughs> and read and want to create you know? yeah. the sicknesses we don't want healed from that's right that's right right that's yeah right don't lay hands on me for that uh next time oil right there <laughs> you know um all right my friend we'll okay catch you soon all right thanks Aaron.